1: Good morning, and welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I'm Olivia Enos, a policy analyst in the Asian Studies Center here, where I focus on human rights issues, and it is my pleasure to be hosting this program here today. Um, Before we get started, I wanted to acknowledge we have a pretty incredible delegation of people not only here up on stage, um, but also who are here in general to educate, lawmakers in Washington and and citizens here about what is going on in Hong Kong. So I wanted to um acknowledge Margaret Ng, who is the veteran lawyer and legislator. <laughs> uh, Lee Chung Yang, uh who is a free trade union leader, <laughs> Jeffrey No, who is the uh one of the main researchers for Democrat. I think you're also a uh, PhD candidate at Georgetown too, which we share in common. I'm not a PhD candidate, but I did go to Georgetown. And then also James Toe, who is the longest serving legislator. So it is really a pleasure to be here, to have so many of Hong Kong's heroes both here on the stage, but also in the audience. Um, Heritage has long followed Hong Kong. My colleague, Walter Lohman has uh, hosted Nathan Law and Joshua Wong, who, of course, uh, many of you may be aware, he was recently re-imprisoned as of yesterday. Um, really just an alarming development. But uh, Walter has hosted them here before to have them speak on these issues. And of course, uh, annually, Heritage puts out its index of economic freedom, where Hong Kong has historically ranked number one for economic freedom. That ranking has been fairly consistent, but over the last several years, we've seen severe deteriorations, especially when it comes to civil liberties and particular areas of freedom in Hong Kong. Um, and while it has held steady in terms of its ranking in the index those civil liberties do appear to be declining is something that we're watching incredibly closely. I think when we look at uh, not only perceived interference by Beijing and Hong Kong's judiciary to the abduction of the infamous Hong Kong bookseller, Long, uh, Lam Wing Ge, um, to today's topic, the proposed extradition law, some are concerned that freedom in Hong Kong may be headed toward a longer term decline. The extradition law poses an especially pernicious threat to freedom there because it would require Hong Kong to extradite people at Beijing's request, both Hong Kongers and potentially even the population of over 85,000 Americans who are living there as well. I think preserving rule of law, preserving economic freedom, preserving freedom in general is critical to the future of Hong Kong, and that's why I'm really excited to host this program today. But I want to really emphasize that this is an incredibly urgent development. The extradition law marks, I think, a a potential turning point for this to be passed. And a turning point that definitely signals a severe deterioration in freedom overall. And it's not only urgent, it's something that has the possibility to be stopped. And I'm really excited for our speakers to address the ways in which that can become a reality. But I think this is also why it's so important for uh, lawmakers in the US, members of the executive branch, Congress, but also lay people in civil society, journalists, and otherwise, to take an active stand and to express concerns about this extradition law, be very, very clear about it. So I hope that throughout this program, we're able to answer some key questions, including to what extent Beijing is interfering in Hong Kong's autonomy and what the US can do in order to preserve freedom over the long run in Hong Kong. So without further ado, I would like to introduce our speakers whose reputations, frankly speaking, do precede themselves. But I want to go ahead and give them introductions anyway. Um, We have Martin Lee here, who is the founding chairman of the Democratic Party, Hong Kong's flagship pro-democracy party. He was elected member of the Legislative Council from 1985 to 2008. He served as chairman of the Hong Kong Bar Association from 1980 to 1983 and took part in the discussions over Hong Kong's 1997 handover from the United Kingdom to China, joining the Basic Law Drafting Committee in 1985. He continues to fight for democratic protections and is the territory's top barrister and senior counsel taking on significant cases to protect the rule of law and the rights of political activists in Hong Kong. On your way in, you may have seen this op-ed that Martin just put out in the uh, Washington Post yesterday, and I think he said something that was incredibly poignant I really wanted to highlight very quickly here. There is no extradition law between Hong Kong and China. And there is no extradition law because there is no rule of law in China. I think that's an incredibly poignant point. Hopefully, he'll be able to dwell on that a bit in his remarks. Um, second, I wanted to introduce um, uh, Mak-Yen Ting, who has been a journalist in both print and electronic media for over 30 years. She is the former chair of the Hong Kong Journalists Association and a co-author of the organization's important annual report of freedom of expression in Hong Kong since the 90s. Mak began her career at the Hong Kong Daily News in 1984 as a reporter, and she joined the Press Freedom Committee at the Hong Kong Journalists Association in 1995. She has testified and spoken globally about the need to preserve press freedom in Hong Kong and was honored in 2007 as a champion of freedom of speech by the Visual Artists Guild. And then last but not least, we have Nathan Law, Democisto's founding chairman. He was the former secretary general of Hong Kong Federation of Students. In 2016, he became Asia's youngest democratically elect- elected lawmaker when, at 23, he won a seat in the Hong Kong Legislative Council before Beijing intervened and removed him from office. He was also one of Hong Kong's first three political prisoners since 1997. Sentenced in 2018 with Joshua Wong and Alex Chow for the leadership roles they played in the peaceful pro-democracy protest umbrella movement in 2014. He recently graduated from Lingnan University in Hong Kong and will be pursuing a master's degree in Asian Studies at Yale University this fall. Uh, And without further ado, please join me in welcoming all of our speakers.
2: Let me say thank you first to Heritage Foundation. And whenever the name appears, you think of freedom. And I'm here the same reason. I want to keep Hong Kong free. Without the rule of law, nobody in Hong Kong can feel safe. The effect of this amendment to our extradition law is that nobody in Hong Kong, including visitors for holidays, can feel free. And the effect is that Hong Kong cannot boast to be an international city, because which city in the world can say, I'm an international city, when I cannot guarantee the safety of the people coming to Hong Kong? How can there be any economic freedom or any sort of freedom when you are liable to be arrested and siphoned off to China upon an application from the Chinese authorities based on very simple evidence, we call prima facie evidence, which would be in the form of a affidavit or even just a witness statement. And the courts cannot stop any transfer uh, of pr- prison or fugitive because the standard is so low. If I were the judge, I would have to order transfer when I look at the witness statement, saying that on a certain certain date, uh, the person wanted. Uh, committed a criminal offence like selling dangerous drugs or whatever. So once the law is passed, there is no protection of the freedom of anybody in Hong Kong, including your 850,000 U.S. citizens living or working in Hong Kong, including preachers and teachers and business people. And, And that is why we are here. There is great urgency this thing because the authorities want to push this thing through for many years now both before and after the handing over of Hong Kong back to China in 1997 there was no and there is still no any arrangement between mainland China and Hong Kong for the transfer of prisoners from one territory to another I was a drafting member of the basic law drafting committee member of the Basic Law, and we looked into this, and it was not there because even the Chinese mainland drafters agreed that their legal system and judicial system is not up to international standards. That is why Hong Kong and mainland China never had and still doesn't have any proper arrangement for the transfer of fugitive offenders. And yet Hong Kong was permitted by Beijing to enter into extradition arrangements with countries like the USA, Canada, Britain, and so on. Whereas China, the mother country, has no such arrangements. Because all these countries, and including the leaders of China, acknowledge that their legal and judicial systems are not up to international standard. So we were hoping that China would improve, so that the rest of the world would be happy to enter into such a- arrangements with China. But no, things have not improved. We all know that. Once anybody is transferred back to China, he or she is liable to make confessions before a TV camera. So this is not great urgency because our legislature is completely dominated by pro-Beijing legislators, and they have threatened to pass this bill into law within one or two weeks. And even the government's target is early July at the latest. Now, we in Hong Kong will continue to fight, of course. We'll go back and we'll all continue to fight. And But unless we have international community support, our government will just ignore us. And this bill will become law. In which case, Hong Kong can no longer be free. And so I'm very happy that we have been invited, by Heritage Foundation, to come here to talk about freedom. But remember, it is urgent. Let us work together and keep Hong Kong free. Thank you.
3: whatever is your preference. i stay here then.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> um, thank you, the Heritage Foundation and the Free Americans, uh, the concern over Hong Kong. I think um, Hong Kong has been on the top of the uh, economic index of the Heritage Fund for so many years. I think it's at least over two decades. And it owes the gratitude to the, free, to the journalists there because we provide... Um, op- we, the information we provide make Hong Kong an open and fair market, which a free economy relies on. And looking at the figures, you may have a deep understanding about it. According to the government, there are around 60 daily newspapers, over 600 periodicals, and six electronic medias there. And also, actually, there are around 3,000 local and international journalists working there. So, but as a veteran journalist i know that the press freedom in hong kong have not have not as healthy as the figures suggest we have a downward since the handover in press in terms of press freedom and a dive since uh, president xi jinping took power in year 2012 and we also witness self-censorship arise when the Beijing interference increased. And on, on top of this um, pressure, we now have the new amended extradition law, which, if become reality, it will hollowing out Hong Kong as the information hub of the Asia. Why I said so? Because according to the bill, the incitement of the Offenses listed in the bill will become extraditable offenses. And as you all know, it is the nature of journalistic work to report things have impact. And this will easily make journalists thought of it. So, and that's why we can be afraid that with this law passed, Hong Kong will never be the safe harbor for journalists who covering sensitive news in China, as well as the editors. Middle management in Hong Kong will not be safe anymore because they will be easily targeted by Chinese and return back to China for unfair trial. And this will, if these things happen, the quantity and quality of news on china will be dramatically decreased or the new available news worker and media editor will move to other countries that china cannot ask for return of the of them so it will mean an exodus of talent out of hong kong and definitely it will hollowing out Hong Kong as an information hub of the region. And not to, re, not to forget that, actually, the 3,000 journalists, including international journalists, CNN, um, Bombert, Reuters, Washington Post, New York Times, all international media have their... Re, we, we got Hong Kong as a region hub now. But will they do so afterwards? I doubt, because at least... Uh, uh, I mean, individual foreign media outlets had told me that they are considering moving their top management or senior journalists to other places if the bill passed. So my guess is not horrible. It's genuine. So we are here to ask Americans to help the journalists who contribute to form up the free market, the free economy.
4: Thanks. Um, hello, everyone. This is Nathan, and uh, thanks for the invitation from the Heritage Foundation, and thanks for all the Indians who turn up and uh, stay very alert and uh, concerned about Hong Kong situation because it is very important. Some of you may have lived in Hong Kong in 80s, 90s, or even early 2000s, ten- and some of you may think that, hmm, um, the situation you have described is uh, slightly different from the ones that you have experienced. But I think it is important to say that the encroachment on our liberty has been in a very drastic fashion in, in the past five years since the Umbrella Movement, the largest protest in Hong Kong in history, because... The Beijing government has, uh, is much tougher hand in Hong Kong and, uh, for a younger generation, we've experienced a lot of suppression. For me, myself, as an example, it vividly demonstrate how they, uh, get tightened control and, uh, erode our liberty. I, myself, as, uh, as described, it was elected in 2016 and then Beijing intervened and then subsequently unseated and then Jailed with, uh, several other activists, uh, who were, le- who played a leading role in, in brand movement. And actually one of my fellow, Joshua Wong, uh, is jailed, uh, just, um, before this event kicked off. So we are in a very, um, drastic situation. And I think, uh, this particular amendment that we're talking about plays an important role of uh, the way, uh, Beijing erodes our liberty. And I think it is far more worse than the things that I've experienced. This damage to Hong Kong system is much more damaging compared to the other events in the past five years. So you could see the seriousness of, uh, this amendment. Hong Kong has always been the forefront of the clash of freedom and also authoritarian values. And it has this symbolic meaning to the world it is the only free uh, only free place in chinese soil that we enjoy certain freedom and it is very important for us to remind ourselves the victory of the uh, liberal values in hong kong is, is actually very symbolic and very important especially in the times that we consider now is a retreat of democracy and a revival of authoritarianism so, um, it is not only Hong Kong's issue, it's an international issue, and everyone who cares about democratic values should take a look at this place. And it is not only about values, it's about interest with a pervasive us interest in Hong Kong, more than eighty five thousand citizens and a tons of business community in Hong Kong operating, and we invite business and the international community has a say on the situation in Hong Kong because it relates to their business interests. For U.S., and it has uh, U.S. Policy, Hong Kong U.S. Policy Act, which um, allows U.S. to treat Hong Kong as a separate custom area, and it gives a, a, a specific position to U.S. to voice out to say that um, if you want us to treat you separat- separately, so you have demonstrated that you have sufficient um, degree of autonomy in order to do so. So obviously the situation in in Hong Kong is completely different from the times the act was uh, about to set up. So I think um, we've got a very strategic position to talk about the situation in Hong Kong in the international level and in the U.S. politics. So um, for now, I think uh, Martin and Mark have just mentioned we're in a situation that it is an urgent issue because the government could pass it Within two weeks or at most in one month's time because they are dominating the legislation. and They could bypass all the routes that we used to have, uh, to, to have a bill, bills committee scrutinize the bill on behalf of people. They can bypass all that and get it done within one single general meeting. So this thing now is urgent, but I think we have the chance to overcome it, to, to really overturn the whole issue because it is the things that we care and we concern, and people in Hong Kong are fighting very hard to oppose that. We have had a uh, uh, hundred and thirty thousand people marching down to the street just a couple of weeks ago, and we've got uh, enormous support in the civic society in terms of um, well uh, petition and statements, and we need international attention and support in order for us to get a better leverage in this battle with uh, to to the Beijing government. So I think, well, uh, for this trip, we've been raising awareness. And um, people in uh, U.S. politics are very concerned about this, especially those who are already very concerned about China issue. And I think we need to have a stronger coalition. We need some more support in terms of showing uh, stronger stance and, and, and really sending a message to the Beijing government that Hong Kong is a free place that guarantees a bus- a business prosperity and affluence. And we should not destroy it because of the political political willingness of Beijing government. So I think if we work shoulder by shoulder, then we could definitely have um, some breakthrough in this uh, situation. And I think uh, we have to do it promptly, timely, because it is a very urgent scale. Great.
1: Well... I wanted to underscore the urgency of this. I mean, we've heard this in a multi-generational panel here. Everyone underscoring the fact that literally within, you know, potentially even a week's time to at the latest July, this law could be passed and freedom in Hong Kong severely, severely <coughs> undermined. So with that in mind... um, I will take the moderator's privilege and ask the first question, um, but be preparing your questions in the meantime. Um, my question to each of you, and I was hoping we could just go down the line, is what is the one thing that the U.S. government or the international community can do right now to, that would be most supportive to freedom in Hong Kong?
2: It's to make a public statement and to tell the Hong Kong government, withdraw the bill. Now, this can be done, and there was a good precedent that it was done. In the year 2003, the Hong Kong government threatened to pass a law which would have seriously (coughs) eroded three of our fundamental freedoms, the freedom of religion, of assembly, and uh, of the press. And we resisted it, and then there was this public statement from the U.S., uh, White House to say that the U.S. government was opposed to the bill. And uh, other governments then followed suit and came out with public statements to the same effect. And Hong Kong people took to the streets in large numbers on the 1st of July, 2003, more than half a million. And that led to the bill being shelved and then withdrawn. So even today, there is no such legislation. So it can be done.
3: Yes, Martin has well said that strong stance position paper will help from different countries and as best if it is a, a collision is a united voice out will be much better because it's a uh, aggregate power and everything is a, uh, you know, struggle between powers. So I think uh, aggregate letters will be much better and even make personal call to carry Lam because time is running out. You know, countries may need time to make up a statement, but personal call is easy. Just ring, pick up the phone, and call Kerry Lam. Hey, I don't like this law. Please, I don't like this bad bill. Take it back. And I think that's the most easy way.
4: Yes, I think uh, we're all thinking very strategically because it is a bill that, may be going to pass in the legislature, so we have to get um, most of the legislature on board in order to stop it. So I think uh, the pro-business camp in Hong Kong is actually terrified, because when the bill is passed, if they have any uh, business conflict in mainland China and the mainland officials is going to file a prosecution, their money is frozen in Hong Kong. And they were being transferred to have trial in mainland China, which, you may um, have a verdict without your legal uh, representation. So these are extremely um, frightening to us our business community, but they they are not to speak up because um, well they, they have always have uh, their political um, affiliation and loyalty to the Beijing government and they are very uh, afraid of um, well it, any types of uh, political retaliation because of their stance, the bill. So I think uh, the international community, Should really give some, give them some leverage, even though, um, they, they, they have been being so, like, hiding back and so on. But these are the people that we have to appeal them and swing their vote. So I think any types of statements and not only from the government, from the international business community, from, um, and anything, any organization that could really signal the, um, well, devastating a consequence of uh, when the law was passed, then it helps. It helps them to restore their faith in in terms of getting these statement to negotiate with the government, and then say, telling them that uh, I'm not the one who back down. It's the worries from the international community, and we are doing business, and that's what we look at. So I think it is very important for us. It's not only from the government. Any one of you who are in any kinds of organization, if you speak up, it helps.
1: Excellent. Um, well, I want to open up uh, the floor to the audience. Um, just a friendly reminder, please introduce yourself. Wait for the microphones. There will be two different people. And please be sure to ask a question. Don't give him any dissertation. So, yes.
5: Great. Uh, Tom Kellogg, Georgetown Law School. Uh, I'm glad that Georgetown is so well represented here today. <laughs> Go Hoyas. Uh, question for the uh, panel, which is to say, are there specific provisions uh, that you feel that the uh, members of the LegCo are more willing to go back and forth on? Um, you uh, Nathan, you talked about how obviously the uh, strong representation of the business community in the LedCO um, means that they do have some concerns, even if they haven 't necessarily been so forthright about them. Are there specific sort of points even if we can 't defeat the bill as a whole, which obviously would be the best outcome, um, maybe trying to push on specific provisions might be helpful. And if I can just sneak in a second quick question. Martin, you mentioned um, the Article 23, uh, 2003 pushback. Do you have any concerns that after this bill goes through, that Article 23 legislation might be uh, following behind? Thank you.
2: Can I take the second question? I can tell you that if this thing goes through, the Hong Kong government will be much more encouraged to immediately bring Article Twenty Three legislation again before this Legislative Council, and they will pass it.
4: Yeah. yeah, um, um, for the first question, um, can you can you say that again? Uh, the, 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 can you repeat the first <laughs> question? Well, I, th- I think that is the difficulties that we have because uh, the most detrimental factor of the whole bill is that they can transfer any one of us to a trial in mainland China under any premises or any so-called protections or any assumptions that they may have that they claim that they could protect us. It's, it's not feasible and it's not workable. So the only way through is to retreat the bill and then guarantee our safety and no Hong Kong people will be extradited to mainland China?
3: I will tell you it's not the one particular article that the legislature will let go. But I tell you only one clause remain in the bill will jeopardize all interests of all walks of life in Hong Kong. That is the last article, the aiding, abetting and inciting of crimes listed in the bills. That means teachers and pitchers, lawyers and accountants, journalists, all representatives in Hong Kong or in America helping people in China to fight for the suppression will be targeted easily, especially the incitement. According to the instruction from the high court in mainland China, your words on your personal social media, forwarded 5,000 times, enough to be categorized as serious crime. So you can imagine, I think everyone in America or in Hong Kong can easily fall full of it. So only one crime remain, That will make you very dangerous. Not least to say, China is notorious to trump up offenses to... Make you in jail to get their own gain or to stop media from reporting. Well, let me uh, have
2: a word too on this one. Um, don't be involved. Uh, don't be bogged down by looking at specific offenses. <clears throat> now the business sector got worried, and the Hong Kong government immediately reduced nine of nine offenses on the list, uh, which had to do with commercial contracts and so on. But the business people fear most is corruption. I mean, if you do business in China, how can you continue to do business successfully without paying bribes? Because they can't control the officials from receiving bribes and asking for bribes. But even if they exclude that too, even they exclude everything except murder, they can come up a charge that you had conspired to murder somebody. Now, conspiracy to murder, you don't have to produce the, even the body. You know, an agreement to murder somebody, which didn't come through. You are still guilty of the agreement to murder. Mm. So it's no use. Just get rid of it. Withdraw it. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes, Margaret? Can
1: I make a simple supplement?
6: Oh, here. Yeah, wait for the mic. Uh, A simple supplement. Uh, there is only one main clause in this new bill, and that is to give the chief executive the power to agree with Beijing to extradite anybody into the mainland. Now, if you don't remove this, which is the, the, the main clause of a bill, nothing helps. And once this passes... Uh, you have no protection whatsoever. And you can't put in any any extra protection. For example, uh, in the United Kingdom, uh, if there is an extradition order against you, you can go to court and say, my human rights is not protected. I won't be able to get a fair trial and so on. This is not available in Hong Kong. And if even if you put it into the new bill, it won't help either because you will be requesting the Hong Kong courts to make a decision whether the, the China, China mainland has fair trial or not. How can a Hong Kong court make that kind of decision? So there is no way of reducing, uh, the, the, the force of the bill. There's no way of adding in things which would render this bill less damaging because the central clause, which is one which the government wants is to give the chief executive that power to Accept Beijing's request to surrender someone in Hong Kong to China. And that someone in Hong Kong is not a Hong Konger, but any person who is found in Hong Kong, whether you are an activist or simply a business person or someone who's passing through, uh, and there is any number of ways to do this. So don't let's look at reducing. The damage of the bill by adding or subtracting clauses. It is the main clause, mm. which is the utmost damage. And if it is passed, Hong Kong will not be free again. Nobody will feel safe in Hong Kong. Thank you.
4: Mm.
0: Thank you. Yes. Excuse me. Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm Tom Reckford with the Foreign Policy Discussion Group. I wonder if the speakers could enlighten us a bit about the current power of the chief executive and to inform us uh, if Carrie Lam is is totally in the pocket of Beijing uh, at this point, or does she show occasional uh, bits of freedom herself?
2: Well, even if she has shown... Uh, bits of freedoms before. She hasn't shown it on this one. And uh, I have to say that the general feeling in Hong Kong is that uh, uh, she is a proxy of Beijing. That was the, the word used by the, the U.S. consul general in Hong Kong. I would use the word puppet. But But to be fair, anybody occupying the post of chief executive is in great difficulty without democratic elections. If the chief executive is democratically elected by the people, then she will say, I'm accountable to the people. But if she is chosen by Beijing, as every one of them has been so far, he or she has to be beholden to Beijing in order to get the continued blessing to get a second term. So that, that is a problem. You can't serve two masters, Beijing and Hong Kong people. My first question is that whether Hong Kong is part of China, mainland China, or it still is a uh, British colony. Because if it's a mainland, part of mainland China, uh, what is the problem with to have extradition or other issue? The other question I have, do you know any place in the world that journalists and press are free when they talk against the government, including this country? Well, H- Hong Kong is not part of the mainland China because mainland is mainland. Hong Kong is an island, and then Kowloon Peninsula, and so on. Now, so, but Hong Kong is a special administrative region, and it is China's own basic policy regarding Hong Kong that a high degree of autonomy was promised to be given and was indeed given to Hong Kong on the transfer of sovereignty in 1997. That was China's own basic policy, all right? And it's spelled out in the Joint Declaration and is enshrined in our basic law, our mini-constitution. The two territories are to be treated separately. We have freedoms. They have also freedoms, but not in fact, all right? In name, yes. Their constitution is is beautiful. But but lawyers can't even quote the Chinese constitution in court for their clients. You see? So that is the point. And we are promised that the freedoms and life, everything else, uh, will be the same at least for 50 years. That's a promise. So the fact that Hong Kong is part of China is not the answer. It is China's own doing to state it in the international agreement between Britain and China, that Hong Kong is to be treated differently, and that is why your country, your um, Congress, passed the Hong K- uh, the U.S. Hong Kong Policy Act, based again on one country, two systems. All right, um, whether any uh, journalist is really free, even w- within a democratic country. Now, of course, that is that is a freedom of the press. Everybody agrees to be absolutely important but once you are in power whether you is deliberate or not deliberate you don't want your stupid things to be exposed by the press so you try to control it but in a democratic country you will not succeed you may succeed for a day or two or even for a few years but i don't think you will succeed forever i mean that's the advantage of having democracy so every few years the public will be will go to the polls and they decide whether to keep you there or not and if you can persuade them, fine. You have a few more years. If not, you come down. So, But in Hong Kong, we don't have democratic elections. That is the problem. And I always take the view that without genuine democracy, Hong Kong can never, never exercise a high degree of autonomy.
1: And I just wanted to underscore this stark contrast as, you know, I quoted from Martin's op-ed, there's currently no extradition law because there's no rule of law in China. And to really highlight this stark contrast and to demonstrate that there's no rule of law in China, we have between 800,000 to 1.1 million, potentially 3 million Uyghur Muslims being arbitrarily detained today. And they're not the only religious minority being persecuted, Christian churches are being burned, pastors are being thrown in prison, um, Tibetans continue to face restrictions on their freedom of movement. This is an entirely different universe, almost. Uh, in the PRC. And I think that's why it's, you know, that's part of the reason why it is so important for us to have this discussion today because Hong Kong has for so long been this bastion of freedom and hopefully it's going to stay that way. So, yeah. Yes.
7: Hi, Michael Martin from Congressional Research Service. I want to pick up on something that Margaret mentioned, but also something Martin you mentioned earlier. Um, Currently we're talking about it I understand, I'm not a lawyer, but we're talking about an amendment to the fugitive ordinance, or the fugitive-offensive ordinance, <coughs> which was written a number of years ago, 1997, when you were a member of Ledkov. correctly. Um, my understanding is the current ordinance, when there is a one-off case of requesting a, the extradition of an individual to a place for which there is no extradition treaty, the decision eventually can go before the Legislative Council for determination, not the chief executive. Okay. So first question is, why is the government changing it from going from LegCo to the chief executive? I've been watching the press. There hasn't been so much focus on changing the authority to whether to honor that request, going from LegCo, the Legislative Council, to the chief executive. That's the first question. Second... I know it was discussed in Hong Kong. Uh, the chief, current chief executive said that the exclusion of China, which effectively for Hong Kong meant mainland China, Macau, and Taiwan, because Taiwan is considered part of the People's Republic of China for Hong Kong purposes, was not done intentionally because of problems with China. It was an oversight, or I'm not exactly sure how she explained it. Uh, Martin Lee, you were part of LegCo at the time. How would you characterize, characterize the language in the ordinance that says it does not apply to China? Was it because of what, – what was the reason that that language was introduced in the ordinance?
2: Uh, the second question first. The answer is very simple because nobody in uh, the Hong Kong government, both before and after 1997, feels that it is safe – for them to transfer Hong Kong resident back to China for a trial, because nobody has confidence in their legal and judicial systems, and in fact it applies to the Chinese leaders themselves, because uh, recent documents kept by the British government were released 30 years after they were made, and those documents show that even the Chinese leaders had been discussing this with the British government, and they themselves acknowledge that their Judicial system is not up to standard yet, so better just leave it there, you see? So they recognize that too. And why, the first question, uh, why would they change instead of have giving oversight to uh, LegCo and, and take it back to the chief executive? Well, there's is easier for her. So she now decides, in fact, in fact, Beijing controls our legislature because the majority of them are beholden to them. But they don't even want discussion there because once you have discussion, things come out to the open. All right? and there is embarrassment to the government. But if she alone decides, who will know about it?
3: Oh, let me supplement a bit. It is along the line of control. When you think over in the past, actually the <clears throat> Hong Kong government trying to weaken the power of people that is represented as in the legislative council. In the, I mean, a pandemic legislator has been flown out, Now they're trying to take out some power of the electrical in this bill. So you can see that this is along the line to control, to take the power in the, in the executive so-called, which is the head, is the chief, the chief executive, Kerry Lam.
2: Margaret's been in charge of this sort of things throughout the years that she was in LegCo.
6: This is unfinished business for me because, um, <laughs> at that time they were dealing with this bill. Uh, first of all, the government in Hong Kong characterized the exclusion of the Hong Kong extraditing anybody into the mainland as a loophole. It was an oversight. But this is blatantly not an oversight because we have record all over the place that it is a standing policy of the Foreign Office not to have extradition relations with any other government which does not have judicial system, penal system, and human rights record up to a certain level, the acceptable level. So before 1997, the question of extradition or surrendering people from Hong Kong to China came up a number of times and it is on the record and every time the answer is the same. So in 1996, when they introduced the bill, the Fugitive Offenders Ordinance that you referred to, it was clearly an agreement between uh, China and Britain to retain that firewall is not a loophole, it's a firewall. That is why it is explicitly stated in the present law that the extradition arrangement does not apply to uh, a place outside Hong Kong, uh, sorry, does not apply to any other place in China. The effect is that Hong Kong cannot surrender Anyone in Hong Kong to the mainland, and this is because of the human rights condition, so there 's no loophole now they try to pretend that it is an oversight it 's blatantly not an oversight. now the second question is that uh, in the in the existing bill, whether you have a long term agreement with another territory or whether you just have a one off Agreement with another territory, the process is still the same. The executive would come to an agreement with this other place, but this has to pass through LegCo. In other words, LegCo can stop it. LegCo doesn't have to stop it, but if LegCo thinks that it doesn't protect the right of the person you're requesting to be surrendered, It doesn't think that that person is going to get a fair trial or getting a, a fair treatment in the other territory, then they can stop it. So what the present government wants to do <laughs> is to remove this go oversight. The result of it is that now the chief executive can form an agreement with someone we have no standing agreement with, basically the mainland of China, and the courts will have to look at whether uh, the person can be committed. So it won't go through LegCo. Nobody would know about this. The pretext of a government is that there are certain extraditions which are so sensitive that if it goes through LegCo, uh, then the person will be alarmed and the person will go away. But in fact, there are other ways of dealing with this. And in any event, if this person's Human rights are not protected, Hong Kong has no business to surrender that person. Because we have obligations under the International Human Rights Covenant that Hong Kong cannot send a person into a territory where his human rights are going to be violated or may be violated. I hope that answers the question.
8: Thank you, everyone. I'm Minky Worden from Human Rights Watch. And I wanted to ask about the um, role of the business community. It seems that Hong Kong's brand, if you want to talk about branding and its role as an international city, is very important to the Hong Kong government. For example, I get the press release from uh, the Hong Kong government whenever they're at the top of the Heritage um, Economic Freedom Index. Uh, And I was very interested to see that the American Chamber of Commerce made an important and almost unprecedented uh, request for the bill to be withdrawn. I wanted to ask uh, the panel, what are the specific arguments for the business community to encourage the Carrie Lam government to simply withdraw the bill? Uh, legislation is introduced all over the world and sometimes withdrawn. I think this is a clear example of something that both um, would be very pernicious for Hong Kong and for its reputation as an international city, but also something that has wide opposition. But could you speak to the role of the business community and what specific arguments they should hear to understand why they need to speak up beyond AmCham to the other chambers of commerce, to the American Chamber of
2: Commerce, um, what can be done? (laughs) Well, very simply, um, they've got every reason to worry about their own safety um, when this thing becomes law. Um, I know American corporations are better than other. Um, corporations in doing business in China. They they are worried about giving bribes, but some still do, not directly, but through the agents, accountants, lawyers, and other people. And uh, that means you are vulnerable once you set foot in Hong Kong after the passage of the bill. And they know that. That's why the uh, business people in Hong Kong are so worried and uh and the government immediately tried to appease them by taking out nine offenses. That is isn't a stupid way of reacting from any government? You know, you want to pass a bill and suddenly so one sector of the community say, Oh, but they will hurt me, then we become uh uh offenders. Right, oh, take away those those laws so that you won't be afraid again. But, but that is already a shocking way of dealing with why do you give preference to the business people? You know, why not ordinary people? What about their freedoms? So but as I said, it doesn't help them. They can pick any other offence which is not within those nine. And uh, so I think the business people ought to realize that there is a time when people should stick together and not just look after my personal interest, you know, and then ignore the other people. I, I always like to remind people of what Martin Neumuller said after the Second World War. When the Nazis came, they first came for the communists. I didn't speak up for them because I wasn't a communist. Then came, I suppose, in the Hong Kong context, then the communists, a PRA came for the bookstore people, and I didn't speak up for them because I was not in, in publishing business, and so on and so on. And finally, and they come to the businessmen, and at which time, according to Martin Moller, there's nobody else who could speak up for me. So, you know, we should stick together.
3: Well, free flow of information is one of the four pillars of success of Hong Kong. It is the saying of the then Financial Secretary Donald Zhang, who became the Chief Executive afterwards. So free flow of information is important to free economy, that all know, and if this bill passed, that no longer free market in Hong Kong and you know very well that with that with all the suppression or with the you know, the risk that you are being abducted, kidnapped or suppressed will chilling out all important news reports that help the businessman to make a clever decision. And with, with occasion has been taken place in mainland China. Investigative journalist jail and for I mean Several years ago, for example, Wang Xilu of the Ch- Jing magazine, which is very famous in China, got jailed. And then Blogger was stopped. And no investigative story about the listed companies go into the public sphere. And more and more things happen in the stock market and even in the uh, healthy industry. All malpractices comes out. And also financial analysis have been jailed for the exposing mal- malpractices in certain company which is supported by district government. And this all kill internet, I mean independent financial research. And this will make, it's almost impossible to, to make a good business or healthy business, business in China.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think the retrospective nature of the specific law is uh, frightening a lot of, um, businessmen. As, uh, one of the pro-business, uh, um, party, liberal party, is head, of Felix Jong, just said, well, paying bribes in mainland China is inevitable. So, uh, it, basically, this is from the, um, um top leader of our pro-business uh, party in Hong Kong. So you could see, um, it, well, if you pay the bribes to, uh, 20 years ago, and, and this law is passed, then you're susceptible to the charges. And you're also susceptible to any kinds of blackmail because uh, you don't know the mechanism in mainland China, and these uh, officials may use this law as weapon to control you or force you to do anything they want or just simply asking for money. So this is the ter- terrifying factor that they're worrying. And also, um, if this law is passed, then... Uh, we can expect that it is very difficult for any one of us to get money out of Hong Kong, and this is happening in Mainland China because they have uh, a, a set of a political needs that needs you to keep your money in Hong Kong. But if this law is passed, then actually you are being if you are being prosecuted, they could just automatically ask the bank to froze your accounts, and you're being brought back uh, brought back to Mainland China and being prosecuted in a very unfair uh, situation. And I think that is. One thing that they one one more options that they have to keep their money in mainland China and um, keep their tighter control to businessmen, and the second thing is it, it creates a lot of uncertainty because you don't know uh, what they will do with uh, this specific um a, a law and you don't know and uh, you don't have any kinds of uh, scrutiny or checks of balances in this spe- specific law. We used to have the electrical to oversight any um, one-off case or or, or have uh, extradition with those, we don't have bilateral agreement. But for now, the gatekeeper uh, is the chief executive, and it is impossible for you to imagine that the chief executive will overturn any request or demand from Xi Jinping. So I think the uncertainty is huge, and we don't know how they will use um, this weapon. It's like placing a nuclear bomb in, in in Hong Kong and you don't know where the bottom is. You don't know who is carrying the password. So I think it is detrimental to the business community, to those who are foreseeing uh, 20 years, 30 years of prosperity because when they have to set up a headquarter in a particular city, they're thinking about 20 years, 30 years, and they're not thinking about five years or three years. So that that creates a lot of worries to those people.
2: I have to say that uh, I can understand individual businessmen not wishing to stick his or her neck out. Otherwise, all the other companies would benefit at their expense. But their chambers of commerce ought to say something on behalf of them. And the American chamber in Hong Kong has actually spoken out. And uh, there's no reason why others should not join in. um, Because um, when they stand together, and they don't need to worry. At all, after all, they have the they have the duty to speak up for their members, who are now extremely worried.
1: We've talked about the effects of the extradition law passing for the business community. We also heard about how it might affect the journalist community. But Martin, when you um, kicked off your speech, you said that there would also be implications for preachers and teachers. And I was curious about what you think the potential implications of, an, of the passage of an extradition law would be for persons of faith in Hong Kong.
2: And uh, I, I'm not suggesting they would actually extradite a particular teacher back to China for trial uh, now, but the threat of it, um, the fact that they have got this power will already make a lot of people uh, tread carefully. Now, there are teachers who are still teaching the students properly and, uh, for example, explain to them what happened on the 4th of June, 1989. Now, if Beijing doesn't like this particular type of teaching and the subject matter, they could actually have a quiet word with him, right? Hey, be careful. Mm-hmm. And, and this would immediately stop. And, and so they, 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 the consequences are beyond your imagination. If this thing is there, and religious, and religious of course, religious freedom. Um, I think China is famous for that, for <laughs> respecting religious uh, for uh, religious freedom. They they take take down crosses from churches. They replace the portraits of Jesus by the portraits of uh, Xi Jinping, you know. And I understand that in some. It's, in some places, they actually remove the first commandment, which is "I am the Lord thy God; thou shalt not have strange gods before me." That is gone. I mean, that's is, that it's crazy. Of course, they would do these things, and the fear is enough.
0: Well, I'm Dennis Halpin, former State Department, former House Foreign Affairs Committee. I had two questions, one on Hong Kong fatigue. I mean, the, on the Foreign Affairs Committee in 2003, when Article 23 came along, there was intense interest, both Chairman Hyde and Ranking Member Lantis led separate congressional delegations to Hong Kong. They sent staff. I know Rick Larson was there this year but i don't see the same interest and then even the umbrella uh movement a few years ago had much more press coverage so is the attitude in the rest of the world may bonfa you know we just can't do anymore i mean are you getting am i wrong are you getting support uh on this issue the second question's about taiwan xi jinping has said um Uh, he won't wait a 100 years for Taiwan like Mao. And he said, one country, two systems is the model. I was wondering, since Taiwan is the number one security concern in Beijing, does anyone in Beijing think if we trample over uh, over Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. if we show that one country, two systems is a total failure – Do they realize they're driving the people of Taiwan further away, making any sort of political reconciliation almost impossible and raising the risk, increasing the risks of a military conflict in the Western Pacific? So one is about Hong Kong fatigue, two about Taiwan.
2: Yeah. And, um, of course, Congress is concerned. Uh, We've seen uh, uh, both uh, uh, senators and congressmen, and women, and they, they are concerned, no doubt about it. Um, and we have suggested perhaps they should get a delegation to Hong Kong, and Hong Kong has always been bipartisan uh, in the USA. So I suggest uh, one member of Congress on the Republican Party and one from the Democratic, uh, the uh, Democratic, that that's good enough. And, uh, or to send the Senate staff, if they really can't do it. So that is being looked into. Uh, of course, Taiwan is, uh, uh, a very important element in the one country, two systems policy. Uh, China's policy towards Taiwan is almost the same as in Hong Kong, one country, two systems. But for Taiwan, they actually said, you can keep your army and navy and air force. And I used to say, it's like a man going to bed with a woman, each carrying a gun. Uh, <laughs> but uh, but clearly, uh, Taiwan is not interested Um in One Country, Two Systems, I remember Chen Shui-bin when he was first elected as president. I still remember he he, he walked over to a a desk full of mics in front of him. He sat down, he said, One Country Systems is not for me. First thing he said, right? And uh, of course, if um, that is the way they handle Hong Kong, the Taiwan people would not be interested at all. And so war is the only way to resolve the Taiwan problem, okay? And on this one, On this one, although the pretext is that there is a Hong Kong guy who killed his girlfriend in Taiwan, murdered her, and and originally Taiwan requested to have this guy transferred to Taiwan for trial for murder, the Hong Kong government just ignored them. And suddenly they said, oh, because of this guy, we want to change the law immediately and then surrender this guy to Taiwan. And the Taiwan government actually said a couple of days ago, officially, that even if you pass this bill, they won't apply for the transfer because this law is based on the premise that Taiwan is part of the People's Republic of China. So the Taiwan government said, "We, we have none of that. So what's the point of rushing because of this particular murder case when the Taiwan government already said, we are not going to apply for the transfer anyway?
4: I think your observation is accurate. Uh, we we haven't been seeing a similar level of attention. And that is the reason why we're here, because we're here to raise awareness. There's a reason why we've been meeting a lot of uh, NGOs and uh, congressmen and having public forums. Is because we understand that it is being overlooked. The damage of this uh, act is being underestimated. And the government is doing such in a height fashion. And that is exactly... In the intention to let everybody, uh, overlook such bill and we're not allowed that this to be happened. So I think, uh, it is important for us to come here and, um, to talk about uh, the danger of that bill. And we definitely hope that, uh, the same degree of reaction from DC and from the White House could re uh, just like the ones in 20, uh, 2003 when, when we are collectively thinking that this is ex- this particular bill well somehow is far more dangerous than the Article twenty three. So at least we we, we need similar reaction from, from that. So that is the reason why we're here. We're all around the world. Uh, Margaret uh, just been to London and Anson Chen is in Germany now and we're spreading the message, doing um all these uh, uh um well um well raising awareness campaign. And for the Taiwan it, I, I think Hong Kong has been a terrible example of one country two system. We all know that. There is only one country and no two system. And we are like stepping into one country one point five system, one point four, you count the math, and there's no much time left. So I think for Taiwan, even though the bluest, the most conservative, they're not agreeing one country two system. Those only those who are rap background and sent by funded by Chinese money would do this advocacy. But the most conservative uh, local politician when they speak about one country, two system, their supporters, when like they have to like throw eggs to them. So I think it is quite clear that it is not feasible. And if there's any military conflict, that must be the responsibility of Xi Jinping with his uh, ruthless um, idea and actions.
3: I've noted that it is, we are not uh, saying that American or the world is ignorant about the Hong Kong issues, but it is the method that the Hong Kong government deliberately making it. They push the bill in a very hasty way. Remember, they only take 20 days for public consultation, so-called, and then table the bill in, to the legislature in April, and they would like to have it finished, passed by July, early July, which means only five months. You remember very well that in year 2003 about the enactment of the Article 23, it takes a year. So that the the government actually trying to make the bill pass not unknown to the people. So, and now we have a very urgent manner because actually I just got some information from Hong Kong that the logical is going to have in-house tomorrow, and they will decide whether they will bypass the bills come, that is, not to discuss in the um, um, bills committee stage, and take the bill directly to the um, whole meeting, to the full meeting. And if that resolution was passed, the earliest day will be 5th of June. So you can imagine they have a day in mind and make it more shorter and shorter, though, so that the world have no time to
2: react, mm-hmm. to reject. Mm-hmm. James, you better take a explain on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
4: James is fully aware of this. Yeah, <laughs> know it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Ellen, did I see you had a question? Yeah. Hi, I'm Ellen Bork,
0: and I'm at the Project Twenty Forty Nine Institute. Um, this is a slight development of Dennis's question, which is, um, I think American policymakers tend to see certain issues as complicating relations with Beijing, um, and they therefore get short shrift. How would you tell Secretary of State Pompeo or National Security Advisor, uh, Bolton that, uh, taking a good position on this issue actually strengthens, uh, their, uh, posture towards Beijing and adds to America's interests and, and, uh, empowers us to have, uh, Uh, you know, better results across the board with Beijing.
2: Yes. um, Once you enter into discussion or dialogue uh, for um, a lot of things, trade war, we call it, uh, ultimately, I suppose, if there is agreement, there will be peace. And there must be agreements of sorts. But how do you trust the Chinese government for keeping contracts or agreements if you allow the Chinese government uh, to treat Hong Kong like this, ignoring all the promises. And uh, so Hong Kong is the key to U.S. policy on China. Hong Kong is the key. And uh, the uh, Harry Lam was uh, complaining that uh, various people, including Ensign Chen uh, and us were going abroad uh, to tell the truth about what's happening in Hong Kong. And she said, "Why do you complicate issues? Now, if that is complicating issues, she is co- complicating issues by introducing this bill, <laughs> right?
4: Well, I, I think, um, as we have mentioned, U.S. has pervasive interest in Hong Kong, and I think um, it echoes to what Martin has just said. It is key to China, and it is also key to a lot of different like NGOs and uh, assistance, and and it's kind of like a big and of different kinds of value that we share with U.S., the rule of law, freedom, human rights, and we can set an example in the Chinese soil. So that that has been the role of Hong Kong. And if we have the ability, a room, a center to know China, to study China, or even transform China, then I think it does more good than harm to the global community. So I think it is the strategic position of Hong Kong, and we have to... Put more emphasis and don't overlook it. And also, I think, um, one more important thing is, um, well, for now, we don't have any information that this direction is come from the very top of the, uh, Communist Party. So even though Kerry Lam retreat the bill, that will be the loss of faith, face for herself, but not the whole Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> so I think in, in, in terms of, uh, talking about faith, what, what, what Chinese matters, it, it, the the degree of that is not is not as serious as the the the, the like uh, trade negotiation and, and uh, country level policy.
1: I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions.
5: I want to ask, uh, you know, Nathan, since you're here, um, uh, I'm just very curious that we're coming up on the fifth anniversary of the uh, Umbrella Movement. Um, And so my question is, uh, what do you think is the uh, future of the democratic movement in uh, Hong Kong? Of course, your colleagues have also deeply invested in this question. But as somebody who uh, was part of that youth movement that made such a, a firm push in 2014, uh, I wonder what your view on this uh, is. <coughs> Josh wong in prison uh, with Jeffrey here in uh, D.C., yourself going to uh, New Haven. Um, uh, there does seem to be a little bit of uh, scattering there, um, quite naturally, because, of course, you uh, may not have the opp- educational opportunities in Hong Kong that you can get here in the U- U.S. Um, but still, um, where do you think things will go for here? Uh, what is the... Uh, potential uh, for further progress in the years to come?
4: Um, that is a good question because I think, um, well, for me, uh, I, I'm not an optimist. Well, basically, I don't think we could get um, much progress in a very short-term future, and I think a lot of Hong Kong people share this sentiment. But I think as an activist, um, we, we still carry hope, and losing hope is vital for us because it means that we could just go back to our life being cynical and being mm-hmm. taken care of uh, joyful move, uh, events and, and so on. So I think we still to have to hang on because we, we've got help and we've got a lot of people suffering. Our colleagues, our friends who are being locked in jail. Joshua just locked in jail and a friend of mine locked in sef- six or seven years and a lot of professors and legal scholars being locked in jail more than a year. So these these are unprecedented, these are terrible, uh, miserable. But I think it also granted us a certain responsibility to carry on on behalf of them. So I think sometimes we, could, we, we, we witness Hong Kong stepping into the era of political prisoner. We feel sad, we feel bad for these people. But it is actually another stream of energy that are injected in our democratic movement because those who are not in jail, those not, who are not suffering, we are getting more responsibility. We are getting more, like, momentum for us to work on behalf of them to do their work. So I think I, I'm not completely pessimistic to to the future. And I think it's a role that every single other political, uh, every single other democratic regime has been through. It's been through struggles, been through sacrifice, and I think. Well, for our younger generation, we were definitely going ahead of that. And I think for me, I spent six years of my undergraduate. I've been elected as a legislator, be unseated, be a political prisoner just within my undergraduate degree. So <laughs> you can see that you can count it how 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 little time I could spend in the classroom. <laughs>
6: I, I think it's
4: just a good opportunity for me to contemplate and to to to, to really crystallize the experience, and uh, ready to fight again.
2: I'll try to answer that question, too. You say, what is the future of democratic movement in Hong Kong? I'm uh, almost 81 years of age now, and my answer is very simple. The future of democratic movement in Hong Kong is Nathan Law.
1: Uh (laughs) Did I see you have a question?
8: Hi, Brenda Hafera with the Fund for American Studies. Um, A similar question that this gentleman posed Do you have a sense of the 20 something, the 30 somethings, what their political opinions are? Are they as um, concerned about this bill and concerned about the direction of Hong Kong, um, both legislators and people in power, and also just everyday citizens?
4: I think generally they are very aware of what's happening in Hong Kong and, um, for us, we've got a special identity attached to Hong Kong other than the previous generation who, uh, who may be, uh, like kind of like a political, uh, economic refugees from China and they have that man, uh, refugee mentality that they care about, um, their livelihood and so on, but not really, um, attached to the, to this hometown. So I think we, we've got a lot of personal connection and, and sentiments connected to the city, and we are all aware of what's happening. But I think, uh, for now, the cynical environment is just overwhelming. And even though we know we have to act, even though we know the situation is bad, but sometimes the kind of um, helplessness that generated throughout the, um, well, uh, unsuccessful uh, social movement on the past few years Indeed, upset our younger generation. So, how to rejuvenize, how to energize these people are the mission of us. We're all aware of the situation, and uh, yeah, and, and the demonstrations just shown the spirit of people. But still, we need more participation from our younger generation. And I think how we could beat that cynicism is the key.
3: Well, I'm in the fifties, <laughs> and quite a number of friends who keep silent on social issues has come to me and talk about the extradition law. And look at this. We got 130,000 people talk to the streets within two weeks' time to organise the march. And it was taking place in April 28th, which is almost two months after the government talking about the bill. So you can imagine... The Hong Kong people do aware of this and they do afraid of it and also angry about it. How come the chief executive introduced a bill that will sell out Hong Kong, that will damage Hong Kong as an international city, destroying the Hong Kong plan? So they marched to the street and I note that the activists, they will organize more march after we going back to Hong Kong, definitely before the passage of the bill.
2: Well, um, of course, the police figures were only 20,000. Mm-hmm. So that means there were 110,000 policemen on, in plain clothes in the streets. <laughs> <laughs>
6: um,
2: before we started, a gentleman walked up to me and said, Mr. Lee, please continue with your good fight. I said, yes, of course. Uh, they are doing the bad fight. <laughs> you know, we, we are fighting for a good cause, mm. and our opponents are fighting it for their own, in, own reasons, selfish reasons, because they are pay a lot of money, I suppose. Right? Many of them are actually uh, put in a very advantageous position where they are in the position to earn a lot of money by being patriotic to China. All right? Whereas we, we have never gained financially by fighting our causes. But ultimately, how can we lose? Does the world know of any dictator who lasts forever? So, and the way I look at it, democracy have ups and downs, the pendulums wage this way and that way, all right? But ultimately, which man, which country can stop the tide of democracy? So to my mind, it's very clear, China will finally be democratic. I don't know how long it takes, right? But ultimately, China will get there. And even if China is the last country to get there, democracy will still reach China. So, how can we lose? And uh, of course, young people would like to see it earlier, but they are now prepared to fight on. That's the important thing. I never thought it would be easy. It would be easy. I won't bother to fight. How can you expect it to be easy to get democracy from communist China? Okay. But the more difficult it is, the more, the greater the victory at the end of the day. And I fight to win. And I'm sure democracy will come to Hong Kong and come to China.
1: It is clear from this panel that time is of the essence, and with a coalition like this, uh, I mean, it seems like we, we definitely need to be, you know, continuing to support them, elevating their voices, and it's going to require an international coalition of the willing, I think, to ultimately defend freedom in Hong Kong. Um, if you've enjoyed this event today, uh, perhaps you would consider coming back to Heritage on May 30th. My colleague Riley Walters is going to be hosting a program called The State of the Chinese Economy, which I'm sure will be of interest to many of you here. But uh, before we conclude, would you please join me in thanking our incredible speakers? And also, if you missed uh, Martin's Op-ed, please grab it on your way out. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Really incredible. How
4: Thank
5: you. Thank you